Lord, your love truly does endure forever. Lord, it's out of love that you created our world. It's out of love that you redeemed us, even as you redeemed the nation of Israel from a physical enemy, Lord, so you have redeemed us and delivered us from a spiritual adversary greater than ourselves. You've delivered us from the kingdom of darkness, from the power of Satan, Lord. You've delivered us, O oh God, from our own addictions and compulsions, O oh God. We thank you tonight. It's love that moved your hand, O oh God, to do this amazing work in our life. And now I pray, even as Paul, the apostle, prayed for the church at Ephesus that you would reveal to us the height, the breadth, the length, the depth of a love that we will never fully comprehend, Lord. But Lord, I believe tonight your Holy Spirit can reveal your love to us and it can grip us, it can apprehend us, it can transform us, it can change us, oh God. And so I pray to that end, Lord, that your spirit would come, make divine love real to us, Holy Spirit. We thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I'm gonna have you uh, turn in your Bibles. We're gonna go right to our text tonight. We've been doing a little mini-series on the parables of Jesus, and I can't think of a greater uh, story, greater parable than found in Luke chapter 15. It's probably one of the most moving parables in the Bible, and it came as a response to the criticism that Jesus was receiving by the Pharisees. Now, how many just say, you know, criticism is really a debilitating situation. Isn't that true? It really impacts in a very negative way. And, you know, Jesus here, as we read through the gospel, we see that he developed, you know, some adversaries called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a very small sect of the actual Jewish population. Most of the people were not uh, affiliated with the Sadducees or the Pharisees, but they were influenced deeply by the Pharisees and what they believed about God. And what we're gonna discover is what the Pharisees believed about God was not right. It's almost like, you know, I did a series on the book of Job and at the very end, we found out that God was upset with Job's friends because they had missed represented God. They had a wrong concept of who God is. And I really am convinced today that the majority of people on our, in, in our nation don't understand who God truly is. You know, we see God as ready to jump on us when we make a mistake, and that's not the case whatsoever. Now, one, in this parable, it's a story of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost boy. And in that, we discover something of the Father's amazing love towards us. Look at Luke chapter 15 and verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. And because this crowd was following Christ, because the common people were excited to hear what Jesus was saying, I believe that it moved the Pharisees to envy. And we recognize that from John's gospel that Christ was delivered up and crucified because of envy, was driving these religious leaders. And it says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now you have to understand that the Jewish people had this very deep concept of what was clean and unclean. If you study the book of Leviticus, it discusses, you know, what foods are clean, what foods are unclean, what's pure, what's impure. And so there was a categorization that people who were not close to God were considered unclean and impure. And so Jesus, in a sense, in their minds, was being contaminated by these people. So if he was really a holy person, he would not be spending time with the wrong people. And so Jesus, hearing this criticism, now begins to answer this criticism by sharing this amazing parable. It says in verse three here, it says, then Jesus, because of this criticism, told them this parable. Look at that verse for a minute. Notice it's in the singular. This is not three different parables. This is a parable expressed in three different ways. And so what we find, first of all, is a story of a shepherd and of a woman, and finally of a father. The shepherd, it says here in verse four, loses one of his 100 sheep. It says, suppose if one of you has 100 sheep. This is a, a culture filled with shepherds. They understood what was going on here, and it says, and you lose one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, 
he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Isn't that beautiful? He finds the sheep. Now, how many know that sheep, you know, have some difficulties? Matter of fact, the book of Isaiah gives us some insight into the nature of sheep. It says, all we, like sheep, have what? We've gone astray. We've wandered off. And sheep need a shepherd. And when we read the Old Testament, we're, we're constantly amazed that God uses this metaphor of shepherd and sheep. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. And then in Psalm 100, it says, we are the sheep, the people of his pasture. Interestingly, God calls us sheep. And what do we learn about sheep? Sheep are defenseless. And one of the things that happens to a sheep is if he falls over on his side, he cannot get back up without human help. He needs to be picked up and set back on his feet. And folks, that's a beautiful picture of what we're like as human beings. When we fall into sin, we need the good shepherd to come along and to pick us up and to put us back on our feet. It's a, a beautiful picture. It says, we like sheep, we've gone astray. But here in the story, the shepherd leaves the 99 and he pursues after this one lost sheep. Then we move to the woman who lost one of her 10 coins. We pick up the story in verse eight. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweeps the house, and searches carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Many scholars believe that what she had lost was part of her bridal dowry. It would be like losing your wedding ring, ladies. This is a big event. I can just see us texting and phoning. Hey, I lost my wedding ring. You know, pray that I can recover and I can find it. This is a significant, you know, has a great sentimental value. But in her case, this was even deeper than that. You know, in case her husband ever decided to divorce her, this was her only means of income. And so she was really in a deep quandary. And the Bible says that she went out and swept the house and searched carefully until she found the coin. And when she did, she began rejoicing and called in her neighbors. And it says, in the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, that's the reoccurring refrain in the parable. If you looked earlier in that parable in chapter 15, after the sheep has been found, it says here in verse 6, then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So now we get a picture. Jesus is answering the criticism. And what is he saying? He's saying that when God finds lost things, when God goes searching for the lost, he rejoices when they're found. That's what I'm doing. Jesus is basically explaining what he is doing, hanging with the sinners that they were muttering about, that he welcomes sinners and eats with them. But then we move to the heart of the parable. And this is the part that is so absolutely moving. You know, sometimes when we, see, we look at sin, we sometimes see sin simply as drifting from God. We're kind of like sheep, you know, just drifting away. Or we can be misplacing our values and losing our sense of worth and value. You know, like that coin that seems to be misplaced. And many times in our lives, we begin to live a misplaced life. We don't use the gifts that God gives us. We're living this life that just all of a sudden becomes a wasted life. And you know, I don't know if you've, you recognize this. How many can say, you know, there's been years I've misspent in my life? You know, and we read from the book of Joel, the prophet, he talks about what sin does. Sin is like a locust devouring the crop, and it causes a sense of famine and diminishment into people's lives, and that's what sin does to our lives. It diminishes us, and so later on when there's a, you know, God restores his people, Joel made a prophecy and said that God would, you know, restore the years that the, the locusts and the canker worm had destroyed. Isn't that great that God can bring about a restoration of wasted, misspent years? And that's an amazing promise that God gives to us. But folks, we don't need to do that. We don't need to make those bad choices. We can live a life of great joy in knowing God. As a matter of fact, at the end, I'm gonna share with you the real secret of happiness. But sin can also be, and, and it is most highly a willful action, and we see that in the story of the boy, the son who leaves home. 
You know, I have a, I've been taking a theology class here on Mondays in Calgary with Pastor Mark and our, and our theology teacher said, you know, sin is a willful action. We don't always think of it that way. But when we make a choice not to serve God, we're making a willful decision. Sin is willful on our part and we willfully turn our back on God. And so what I wanna look at today is not so much that we do this, but the reality is how does it affect God and then what does God do about it? And so we see the heart of the Father towards sin and the first thing we see is his response at being rejected by us because all of a sudden we make a choice Rather than knowing God, rather than pursuing God, rather than experiencing his love for us, we often turn our back on God. Look what happens as we make these decisions. Really, it's love cast aside, and we see it in verse 11 and 12. Then Jesus continued. Notice that. It wasn't that Jesus is starting a new parable. He's actually continuing the same parable. It says, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between his two sons. You know, basically, what this younger person is saying is, you know what, I want my share of the inheritance. Now, when when do we generally receive our inheritance from our parents? When they die. And I'm gonna share a little bit from Kenneth Bailey, who is an Mid-Eastern scholar, and he says this in a traditional Middle Eastern culture. This means, what he's literally saying to his father when he says, give me my share of the estate, he's saying, Father, I'm eager for you to die. Now, how many would really feel, you know, really loved by your child if they said to you, I just wish you would, you know, drop dead so I could get the money? You know, that's basically what he's saying to his father. Now, how many say that's, that's really kind of harsh, it's a little intense, isn't it? And if you were a Middle Eastern traditional um, father, you know what you would do? You'd strike the boy across the face and drive him out of the house and say, what a disrespectful son you are. That would be your response. But what we see here in this, because it's such an outrageous request, the prodigal is not simply a young person who's you know, off to the big city to make his fame and fortune. Rather, He's a young person requesting what is unthinkable, particularly in a Middle Eastern culture. The father is expected to refuse if he is truly an Oriental father, a patriarch. But you know what Jesus is teaching these people? God is not like that. God is not like this. He's not gonna slap the son. He's not gonna cast him out of his house. No, the father literally hears the cry of the son and gives him what he is asking for. He's giving him the share of the estate, which is really revealing the son's true condition and also the the nature of the father. And so what we learn here is that love literally releases. Now I want to say something to us. How many know that love is something that we choose to give someone? It's, It's a choice we make. We choose to love folks. And when God created humanity, he, gave, he made us in his image, and he gave us a will so that we could choose to love God. We have a choice. We can either love God or we can refuse to love God, but the choice is ours. And God runs a huge risk when he created humanity because he did not know if we would respond. I mean, I think technically he did. We could talk about what God knows or doesn't know, but in a sense, he runs the risk, right? I mean, if he truly gives us a choice, there's gonna be people who choose not to love back. And that's exactly what happens. We see that over and over again. But the father releases the son. Now, this costs the father not only in terms of financial cost, but we can't just measure this in terms of economics. There's a huge emotional cost in the story, the huge emotional loss. There's probably nothing worse than love's rejection. The pain of love rejected. How many parents have had this kind of an experience where a son or daughter runs away? How many Christian parents have grieved because their children have turned their back on the faith of their parents and have embraced the values of an ungodly culture? Brokenhearted, the parent 
or the parents are battling with guilt and shame in their life, wondering, what did I do wrong? And I mean, I, I've been a pastor for so long. I've had parents weeping in my office going, Pastor, I don't know what I did wrong, why my kid turned out this way. But I want to show you something of the nature of God. Listen to what happened. How many believe that God is the perfect parent? You know, and he had created Adam and Eve in a perfect environment, but he gave them a will. And the moment you have a, a will, people can make a choice, and sometimes it can be the wrong choice. And Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They chose away from God. Talk about painful. But here I'm gonna say something to you. The perfect parent raising kids in the perfect envi environment, and the kids didn't turn out right. You know, so many times as parents, we take on a lot of blame. This culture has done a great disservice to humanity. We live in a culture that always tries to blame someone else for our problems. Isn't that the truth? And you know what happens when we do that? We become a victim. And I am so convinced that until we begin to take responsibility for our part, it doesn't mean people haven't abused us or hurt us or disappointed us or maybe they weren't the best parent. We could go on and on and on. But I'm gonna just say this. We have to take responsibility for our response, how we respond to this. And we see here that the son, you know, here decides, I'm leaving, and the father lets him go. How many know it's hard to let people go? You know, I, I don't know, I've been involved in so many situations where one spouse, you know, maybe runs off with someone else, and the other spouse is trying to hang on, and I finally say to them, listen, you know, they've made a choice. You need to let go. Love has to release. I mean, if, if this person's gonna come back to you, they're gonna come back to you, but if they're not, they're not. You need to let it go. It's so painful to let go, isn't it? It's hard, it's difficult to let go, but we need to do that, you know? Yes, we need to forgive them. Yes, we need to release them. And, you know, if it's meant, you know, because I always say it takes two to make a relationship work. And the scriptures teach this, you know, as much as it lies within us that we're to live with all men peaceably, but sometimes there are people who, you know, who are at odds, you know, we can have estranged relationships, we can actually have a right relationship with God, and people can be estranged from us, and yet we've not done anything to, you know, to develop an estranged relationship, and I say to people, listen, if you've done everything humanly possible to have a healthy relationship with this person, don't live in guilt and shame and brokenness, release them to God's grace. Well, the father did that. And furthermore, the prodigal gathered all that he has. As the New English Bible puts it, he turned it into cash. This means that he sold part of the family farm. As that happened, how many know this was actually a horrendous thing, but now everyone in the community knew there was a problem in this family. And that shame was now upon the family. And you know why parents get so upset with kids sometimes? Because their bad behaviors bringing shame on them as a parent. So let me tell you something. God understands what it is to be shamed. You know, we, we have to handle that stuff. We have to be mature enough to handle it. It's not, we're not doing this. Amen? We didn't do it. They're making a bad choice, but we're also suffering the shame. And I want you to see in the story, the father is now being shamed by his son. Now, it's interesting, in Jewish law in the first century, they did make a provision for the division of an inheritance when the father was ready to make such a, div a division. But it did not grant the children to the right to sell until after the father's death. And so in a second departure from the expected norm, the father grants the inheritance and the right to sell, knowing that this right will shame himself and the family before the community. From the opening lines of the parable, it is clear that Jesus does not use a Middle Eastern, Oriental, patriarchal model as a father. He's breaking away from that image. And so we read in verse 13, the prodigal sells quickly. Not long after, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country. Why did he do that? Why did he run away? Because what he had done was so shameful in his community, there would be so much anger, he knew he couldn't survive there. So he, he's embarrassed by what he's done, and so he runs away to have, you know, you know he, he recognizes he's shaming his family, so he runs away. And, uh, 
he gets out of town. Now, what we need to understand that will really help us get a, a glimpse of what's going on in the story, in the Jewish Talmud, this is uh, an Old Testament writing of Jewish uh, scholars, it's, it is known that the Jews at the time of Jesus had a method of punishing any Jewish boy who lost his family inheritance to the Gentile. And it was called the Kitsatsa ceremony. Now, however you say that, you can straighten me out later on the enunciation here. Horror. It was such a horror at a loss that even this idea was not only reflected in the Jerusalem Talmud, but it was also discovered later in the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The same idea that a violator of the community's expectations would face this ceremony if he dared return home to his village. And the ceremony was actually simple. The villagers would bring a large earthen jar, fill it with burnt nuts and burnt corn, and break it in front of the guilty individual. And while doing this, the community would shout, so-and-so is cut off from his people. And from that point on, the village would have nothing to do with that wayward person. And from the various references to this ceremony, it appears that this ban was even more comprehensive than what the Amish do when they're shunning people. As a matter of fact, when an Amish person is shunned, at least they can actually sit at a separate table. But in this Jewish ceremony, it's a total ban of any contact with the violator of the village because they have violated this code of honor. In other words, when he leaves his village, he's burning his bridges. And as he leaves town, he knows, I cannot afford to lose this money. This is not going to be good for me if I do. And he goes out and he lives in the far country, it says. And not long after that, verse 13, he got together all he had. He set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Wow, wasn't that powerful? And this is where love is grieving. It's not that the son was grieving, but the father was grieving. The father, because he was more experienced and more mature and had greater knowledge, knew that his son was in the wrong space when he left. And he knew that his son was gonna do something stupid because he had the wrong attitude. And yet the father let him go. You know, sometimes it's hard to let people go that you know are gonna mess up. And you know it. And your heart is breaking for them. And I can see tears in the father's eyes as he's letting the son go. And, and the son goes out and sure, true to form, he just squanders everything he has. And you know, Proverbs says this, to have a fool for a son brings grief, and there's no joy for the father of a fool. Now, the word fool is not somebody that's just stupid. It's talking about somebody who's morally and spiritually bankrupt. He said, this is gonna bring grief to the family. And this son is bringing grief to this father. And so we read, he didn't fare too good. I mean, he lived for whom? He lived for himself. He partied. He had a good time. He had, how many know you got a big bankroll? You can do a lot of things. And he, and he lived a fast life. But you know, it cost something to live that life. And eventually he squandered everything he had. And finally he was broke, it said. And then everything disappeared. The parties, the friends, everything he had was gone. You know, Augustine says it this way. The far country is simply forgetfulness of God. I believed when he was in the far country what he was doing was he had no thought of God in his life. And what's interesting is we can actually be in a far country and be sitting in church. That's an that's a interesting thought. We're gonna see that a little later on in the story. You know, because it's not, it's, it's about where we're at in our heads and our attitude towards God. Is God really preeminent in our life? Is he the one we're pursuing after? In verse 14 it says, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. It just so happened that after he was broke, there was no more work, you know? How many remember back in the day here when, you know, we had a recession in Alberta? See, we, we, have, we keep forgetting these things. You know, everything's cyclical. You know, we're booming and everything's great and people are squandering it. And then the day comes when the whole economy changes and everybody is in trouble. And that's where he was at. He had squandered everything and now he was in a recession. There was no jobs. Well, he finally begged and found a, a spot. He was so broke. You know, he had lost everything. And I think too often we see this strictly from a physical or an economic perspective, but I believe it speaks of the entire personality. He was bankrupt. He had no friends, no family, no emotional support. 
He had no God in his life and therefore he had no hope. A devastating condition. Spiritually and morally bankrupt. Without dignity, he found a job caring for the pigs, the hogs. A pig farmer. Now, how many know no Jewish person in their right mind would be working for a pig farmer? Because, you know, when you read in the Old Testament, pigs were considered unclean animals. And so the Jews didn't eat pork and they stayed away from it, at least the ones that were trying to serve God. So obviously he was far from God in his thinking and he finally got a job with one of the pig farmers. Can you imagine? And we realized that they were probably not paying him. And we'll see that in a moment. No self-respecting Jewish boy would stoop so low as to engage in such a violation of the law. But this boy had sunk to an all-time low. You know, sin always reduces us as people. We lose our self-respect, our sense of self-worth. And I want to just say this. You know, that our culture can talk about affirming and, and, and talking about putting self-worth inside of people. But you know what the deal is? You can say all the right things to people, but people deep down inside know if they have value and worth. And I'll tell you how you know you have value and worth. When you're living right, when you're doing what's right, when you can live with yourself, when you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what, I'm living the right way. There's a sense of value in that, a sense of respect, a sense of self-worth. And this boy didn't have it. He'd lost it. The Bible says that you know, he, he longed to have his belly filled with the pods that the pigs were eating. It says in verse 15, he went out and hired himself to a citizen of that country. Obviously, it was not a Jewish place. It was a Gentile place who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. How many say that's pretty low? Now, if you, if you, how many have ever fed what pigs eat? You know, you ever, I, I've gone out with some of my family members and we fed the pigs. You know, you don't give the pigs the best food. That's kind of the leftover stuff, right? The junk, it's usually a bunch of stuff sitting in a pail and you throw it in the thing and the pigs come running up and they eat it. And can you imagine lusting after that? You have to be pretty hungry to want to eat pig food. That's all I got to say. You got to be pretty hungry to want that. And then it says this little statement there, it says, but no one gave him anything. See that little expression? In other words, he wasn't being paid. Maybe he was getting room and board. Maybe he was just kind of on starvation wages, just holding himself together. And then we realize there's a change in the story, and we're going to begin to see how love begins to prevail. And here the prodigal, you know, he came up with this plan. I'll get a job. I'll pay back what I'd squandered. And so he went to work for the pig farmer, but no wages. And so he now moves, he's becoming even more desperate. You gotta get a sense of the story. He's getting desperate. How many here have ever been in a despairing, desperate situation? I mean, you wouldn't even think of doing this if you were on top of things, but you're at an all-time low and nobody cares. And you have nothing and you are absolutely desperate. This is the condition of this young son is in. He's desperate. The Bible says he comes to the second game plan. Verse 15, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. He remembers the father's house. That's a good step. He remembered the father. What does that tell you? When he left home, he had forgotten the father. He had no thought of the father. You get a picture of this. This guy's emotionally disconnected with his family. He's emotionally disconnected. What we're going to see with the one who loved him the most. This is amazing. So his first plan, becoming a pig herder, is not working. And the text deliberately affirms that no one gave him anything. So as a pig herder, he's not being paid. And the first century Jewish reader knows the prodigal's got to earn the money he wasted in order to avoid the ceremony. Because he knows if he comes home, the first thing those villagers are going to do is run out and they're going to ban him. They're going to, they're going to shame him. But he's so desperate, he goes, there's only one place I know I can find a job. And I know my dad even treats the hired servants Better than anybody I've ever seen. I'm going to go home. I'm going to try to bend my father to my will. I'm going to try to talk my dad into giving me a job so that I can earn the money, so that I can pay back, so that I won't be shamed in the eyes of my community. And so he moves on. He'll go, he goes home. You know, in a sense, it's a self-serving plan. You say, why is that? 
because he's still thinking about himself. He's not even considering what he's done in the wake of his absence. He hasn't considered how he's impacted his own father. And perhaps the most theologically damaging traditional misunderstanding of the parable is in the popular perception of the phrase, he came to himself. I know, I've had this viewpoint, but I've changed it. You'll see. This has long been interpreted. He repented. This reading of the text dulls its cutting edge and breaks up the theological unity of the chapter. The good shepherd, notice, must travel to the wilderness to find the sheep. He does not return to the village and wait for the sheep to return back home and start bleeding at the door of the sheepfold. No, the good woman lights a lamp and searches diligently to find the lost coin. She does not resume her chores, expecting the coin to flip itself out of a crack in the floor and land on the kitchen table. No, she searches diligently. In short, the sheep and the coin must be rescued. In the first story, the lost sheep is a symbol of repentance, and repentance is shown there as an acceptance of being found. And the second story confirms this definition. But if the prodigal truly repents in the far country and struggles home on his own, then Jesus is contradicting himself as he's traditionally understood by telling the parable of the good shepherd. Jesus is invoking Psalm 23, which also has a lost sheep and a good shepherd. The key phrase in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But if you skip down to verse three, it says what? He restores my soul. You know, so often when we read that statement, it has come to mean I was downcast and the Lord restored my spirits. That understanding, no doubt, is part of the psalmist's intention. But the Hebrew there literally means he brings me back. He causes me to repent. Clearly, the psalmist is lost, and God, the good shepherd, brings him back to the path of righteousness. How many here can say, you know, there have been moments in my life where I've strayed from the path that God has had me on? I've deviated. I've gotten off of it. I've needed to be restored. And so when the prodigal speech is read in this light, a new meaning emerges. The psalmist believed God brought him back and caused him to repent, and the prodigal is gonna solve his own problem I don't think so. The verb for return does not appear. The long, rich history of Arabic versions contain a number of interesting translations of this key phrase. Some read, he got smart. Others translated, he took interest in himself, or he thought to himself. None of these translators see the prodigal in the far country as repentant. Oh, but you say, Pastor, just a minute, just a minute. You're getting this wrong. Just listen to his repentance. Listen to what it says here in verse 15. It says here, uh, and, and in verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Isn't that his confession? Yeah, but all the Jews listening to Jesus tell this parable know something you and I, as a modern reader, don't know. They know that this is manipulation. What do you mean, Pastor. Well, they recognized that confession as a quotation from Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Remember when the plagues were coming against the Egyptians? And he sees Pharaoh trying to manipulate Moses into lifting the plagues. As a matter of fact, after the ninth plague, Pharaoh finally agrees to meet Moses. And when Moses appears, Pharaoh gives this same speech. And why does he do that? Because everyone knows Pharaoh's not repenting at all. We know he's not repenting. He's simply trying to bend Moses to his will. It's very powerful. See, we don't get this, but they got that. They know this is not a repentance. I'll tell you where he's repenting. You'll see it in a minute. You see, the young son thinks he will be saved because he does the right thing. You know, how many people have I talked to over the years and they said, you know, you need to come to Jesus just as you are. And they said, you know, Pastor, I'll get my life right with God when I get my act together. And folks, we never get our act together. You see, the law can't save us. Only grace can. You know, he thinks he can manage. But is the loss of money the real problem? Or is that just a symptom of a deeper problem? I think it's just symptomatic 
of his relationship with his father because you know what? The son had written off the father years before. The son had been so alienated from the father. The son was living solely for himself. The son could care less about the father. He'd already told him, I wish you were dead. I wish I could just move on with my life. He had written the father off. So it's not just about having the money. See, the son is back there trying to figure a way to somehow get in a good standing with the society in which he was living in. He does not consider the father's broken heart and the agony of the rejected love that his father has endured. He's had no thought of that. While talking to himself in the far country, he he evidences no shame or remorse. If he's a servant standing before his master, His plan is somehow adequate. If he's a son dealing with a compassionate and loving father, his solution is inadequate. And so the prodigal now is stealing his nerves. He's coming home. It's amazing what God will allow us to get to. Let me just move on here to the second point. We see the father reconciling with his son. I want you to notice it's the father that does it. Here's the story. It's a, it, it, this, this makes so much sense to me. Look what happens in verse 20. So when he got up, he went to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father, what? Saw him. What does that tell you about the father? He was looking. He was waiting. He was waiting for the day when the son would show back up. He he was hoping, he was praying, he was trusting, he was waiting, and there came a day, and while he was a long way off, he could see his son coming. And then the father did something unthinkable. The father did something so strange, it's so amazing. When Jesus tells this, it shocks the hearers as he tells this part of the story. There's no condemnation for failure. No punishment, but full pardon and forgiveness. What prompts the the father to behave like this? His love. The Bible says God commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The father had been watching and waiting and the day came and the son came home and the father now realizes one thing. I have to get to my son before the villagers do. Because if the villagers get to my son, they're gonna start enacting that ceremony. And the father's concerned about the son, and he does something unthinkable. He runs to the son. You know, Aristotle, which was, he was a philosopher written in the 5th century B.C., said, it was very undignified for a senior man to run. Great men never run in public. Now, why would that be? See, if I was wearing the clothing of the day, what would I be wearing? A robe. And for me to run, I would have to do something. I'd have to reach down and grab my robe and begin to pull it up and tie it around my waist. By the way, I've seen this done. I was in India. They were out there fishing, and these guys wore these kind of clothing, and then they would gather it up and tie it around their waist so they would have mobility of movement. And what you are doing at that moment is exposing yourself. And that was deemed a sense of a shameful act. And when you're a dignified older man, you know, you don't have nice legs. Just tell you that. They're wearing out or whatever. You know, it's just perceived in that culture as an undignified behavior. And to run was seemed as an undignified behavior. And so he exposed himself and shamefully ran toward his son. And I want you to notice what he did. It's amazing to me. It says, but while he was still a long way off, the father's psalm was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, tell me, what did the son smell like? Pig. He smelled like pig. Folks, when you and I come to God, we stink. We smell like sin. But it didn't stop the father. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. You know, kissing is an expression of love. We practice it all of our culture. We all kiss, right? But you know what? It's got even a deeper meaning. It speaks of reconciliation. I believe at that moment when the father shamed himself, became, you know, what can I say, less than dignified, and ran to the son and threw his arms around him and kissed the son, literally reconciling himself to the son. Listen to what the son says. 
I believe this is when he repented. I believe this is when he made his confession and said, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice he didn't say, give me a job. The third part of the expression, the plan went out the window. He, for, for the first time, he realized, my God, I've sinned against you, Dad. I'm so sorry. He just broke down began weeping. Can I tell you how indignified God is? That he came and left heaven. He ran to earth, was born as a baby, and he ran to a cross. And he died a criminal's death. And I'm gonna tell you something. You know, we try to, you know, make it look good. But I'm gonna tell you, when they beat Jesus, they stripped him of his clothes. He was hanging there naked. He was fully exposed. He was being shamed. He was undignified. He was shaming himself in order to reconcile us back to the Father. When Jesus is telling the story, he's telling us he and the Father are one. He is doing this. This is why he's with sinners. He's being undignified. He's shaming himself in order to reach them. Isn't that powerful? This is so moving to me. This, this is amazing love. You know, the Bible says God commended his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ became undignified and shamed himself and ran to us and threw his arms around us and kissed us to reconcile us to himself. Man, this is powerful. The action of the Father is one of compassion. That's what love in action is. And then what does he do? He, 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 you know, we, we read for the third time. The father breaks the mold of the Middle Eastern patriarchy. He takes the bottom edge of his long robes, I've already said that, falls on the neck and kisses him. And we've already said all this. Okay, we're back to the beginning. But let me just say this. He then gives him a robe. You know, that robe represents something. In the New Testament, we've been given a robe called righteousness. We've been clothed with God's sinlessness. This is amazing to me. You know, it's, it's an exchange. God takes our sin on himself, and we get his righteousness. How many go, that's a little unfair exchange, isn't it? For God, it's unfair. For us, it's absolutely marvelous, you know? And then what does he do? It says, in the story here, it says, the father said to the servants after the son confessed, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. You know, the ring is a signet ring. And in the ancient times they would write and they would use scrolls and they'd roll them up and then they would put a wax seal and you'd use a signet ring to press your seal on the wax. And that was a, a sign of your authority, your name. It speaks of your authority. What, what, is, what is the father saying? I have restored to you the authority of being my son. And listen to what John writes in his gospel, but to as many as received him, to them gave he the authority to become the sons and daughters of God. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing to me. We know it from the end of the story, the older brother comes out. What's he do? He's upset. Isn't that true? He's all upset. He goes, man, I can't believe this. The way you're treating this guy, he says, the father says, bring the fatted calf, verse 23, kill it, let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead, is alive again, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing, so he said to one of the servants, hey, what's going on? The servant said, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became happy and rejoiced. Oh, I read it wrong. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. He's now helping us to understand the attitude of the Pharisees. Can you see the Pharisees listening to the story? What are they learning? 
that they're the older brother who though has been with the father the whole time never knew the father wow so his father went out and pleaded with him but he answered his father look all of these years i've been slaving for you never disobeyed your orders that you never gave me a young goat so that i could celebrate my friends but when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home you kill the fatted calf for him my son the father said you are always with me and everything i have is yours but we've had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found he said this is the heart of my this is my heart this is the heart of a father. And you don't have the same heart. Basically, he's showing them, you don't have the heart of God. The Pharisees who said that they were serving God were so far away from the heart of God, it was crazy. As a matter of fact, I would point out to you, they were so far away from the heart of God, they actually crucified the God they said they worshiped. Isn't that stunning? Doesn't that kind of stun you a little bit? It does me. It says to me, you can be a religious person. You can be in the church, but you can miss the heart of God. You can miss, understand who God really is. We can misrepresent who God is. What is God like? God is the most loving person I have ever met in my entire life. Let's stand. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was praying this morning. I was deeply moved today. I don't think I've ever been as deeply moved before a sermon as I was praying. I was weeping. <clears throat> and I'm not given to that. As I was thinking about the love of God. And then I was listening to this you know, lecture yesterday. And it was basically saying the true secret of happiness. You know what it is? It's seeing God. The true secret of happiness is seeing God. But what do we do? in life we get distracted we we think i'm trying to find meaning and significance and happiness and i think it's going to be found in this job or this person or this this other pursuit in my life and so i leave off pursuing god to go over here and pursue this you know do you know what idolatry is it's false worship idolatry is when whenever we put something other than god in, the, in place of God. Whatever we pursue after more than God becomes the God we serve. And it promises us something. It, you know, I've gone through all kinds of interesting experiences, you know. At, at, at a, there was a point in my life where I made ministry of God. And God broke me of that. It shattered it in my life. You know what? If I never minister again, that's fine with me. It's not about ministry, it's about who he is. If you really want to be happy, we need a vision of who God is. And when we see God as he really is, and we pursue him, it doesn't mean that, you know, God won't give us something to do or we won't have some significant people in our life. That's not what it's about. But it's putting God first. And when we don't do that, what we're really doing is rejecting love, just like this prodigal did. We're not understanding love, and we've misunderstood who God is, just like the elder brother. Folks, we need to pursue God. You know, I was listening to someone share this thought. In the Greek world, there were four major elements. Earth, wind, I forget the other one, and fire. And in the New Testament, fire is always a beautiful picture of God. God is a consuming fire. And on the day of Pentecost, what happened was fire came on the disciples. And you know what happens when fire touches earth? Well, let me give you this picture. Just think of this piece of metal, which represents an earthly element. And you know what happens when you put metal into fire. You know what happens as that fire begins to take, you know, the metal begins to take on the properties of the fire. You begin to see the glow of the metal. You can begin to see this refining process. You, be, you begin to see something happening to this metal. It's being changed by the fire. And my prayer today was for us, oh God, that your fire, your grace, your love would touch us earthly beings and there would be a transformation inside of our souls because love had apprehended us and that we would be on fire. 
And I'll tell you, when the early disciples on the day of Pentecost, when the fire of God came down from heaven, something happened inside of these people's lives. They were never the same again because fire, the presence of God came within them. My prayer for you tonight is to say, oh God, you know what? I'm, I, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I should be. But you know what? I know one thing about my God tonight. He's an undignified lover. If I even begin to move towards him, he's going to run towards me. Wow, is that amazing or what? I'm going to ask you to do a real brave thing tonight. Because I think sometimes we have to take a physical step to demonstrate where we're at in our lives. And don't worry about what people think or say. Who cares? It's about us and God tonight. And if we're here tonight to say, oh, I long to have the Father's love rush towards me. I want the Father to run towards me and embrace me. And that's you tonight. And God's speaking to your heart tonight. The Spirit of God is talking to you about where you're at in your life. And you've allowed other things to creep in. And you've walked away from this passionate love for God. I'm going to ask you to just to move out of those pews right now and walk down here. And the moment you start stepping up and walking down here, I believe God is going to run towards you his undignified manner. He's going to wrap his arms around you. He's going to embrace you. He's going to do a work in your soul tonight. If that's you, you just come tonight. You come tonight. You come to him and allow the fire of the living Christ to touch your heart. That's the work of the Spirit, my friend. And we'll be like that little blade of metal allowing fire to begin to work within our soul. We will come alive in his presence. Hallelujah. You know, the Word of God, it's so, it's so beautiful. I love God's Word. It's God communicating to us. It says, if you hear my voice, what? Do not harden your heart. We can do that so often. Just shut it off. Just say, okay, I'm not going to do this. I don't want to embarrass myself. I'll tell you, God embarrassed himself. He embarrassed himself for you and for me. He runs to us. I'm amazed. So, Father, I pray tonight for my brothers and my sisters, even as they've come to you tonight. Lord, as we've heard your voice speaking into our hearts, oh, God, I pray tonight, a work of cleansing, a work of your redeeming love, a work of reconciling love. I pray that there will be transformation happening in our heart as your fire touches our heart. Lord, that we'll consume by love, Lord. It's amazing what your love will do. It forgives, it cleanses, it transforms us, oh God. It makes us a new God. It brings happiness into our life because now we're pursuing the right object and the, and the right object is actually you, Lord. We're pursuing after you. Oh, to know you, to, to experience you, Lord, to long for you. Lord, to not allow anything in this life to take that place in our soul that's you and you alone. We just thank you for that tonight. We thank you for hearing our cry. We thank you for your undignified, loving manner in touching our life. Oh God, we're so thankful. We're so thankful tonight for your love. Lord, I've been just overwhelmed in the last number of months of how loving you really are. It's been beyond my understanding. Lord, it's been amazing to discover just how much you love us. And Lord, it's love that changes us. Lord, all the criticism, all the, all the teaching in the world isn't going to change us. Lord, it comes down to your love filling our hearts, your presence in our lives. We just thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name. Hallelujah. You know, they're going to.